God is good. Right? All the time. I gotta love that Kim family. Right? Yes. And all of our musicians that are with us today, thank you so much for all the music. And Dr. Bob for planning it all, our puppets and everybody. Yes, you can clap. You can give thanks. We're continuing with our uh, camp meeting theme. And uh, appreciated Lee Venden being here uh, for several days, but last week. And reminding us that that relationship with Jesus is everything. Did I say everything? I mean everything, right? And as we look at Micah 6.8 for our, the rest of our theme for this camp meeting, um, what our speakers are going to share with us about Micah 6.8 doesn't happen without the power of God within us, making a difference in this world. Let me just share Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We have today with us um, Dr. Zane Yi, who is Assistant Professor of Religion at Loma Linda University School of Religion. He's, uh, he was with us a couple of years ago, and uh, we've invited him back again uh, for this August in Calamesa. So thank you, Dr. Yi, for being with us, and let's welcome him up here this morning. heard the uh, word of God being read, we've heard it being performed, we've prayed. I'm not sure there's anything really left to do uh, to worship. So maybe just a few moments to reflect on the text and draw together some of the themes we've already started reflecting on. Before we dive into that though, it's good to see some of you. It has been two years. I can't believe how fast that has passed. A lot has changed, a lot has stayed the same. Last time I was here, my daughter uh, was about a little over one. I think I shared a picture. I was learning how to be a new parent. I was uh, relatively new to the Loma Linda faculty, um, figuring things out on campus. And uh, now my daughter is three, and uh, I'm still learning how to parent. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure out my job on campus, so here we are. you know, one of the things that, that I've grown to appreciate the past couple of years is uh, working and, and being in classes with many of you that are members of this community. The last time I really couldn't differentiate between Calamesa people and Loma Linda people. And I don't know if I still can, but I've learned that many of the wonderful colleagues I have on campus are, this is their home community, right? And uh, a lot of the students that I've had in class, I've had amazing conversations with, worked on projects together, they're also uh, members of this community, homegrown here in Cala Mesa. So it's good to be together, worshiping together, and uh, uh, engaged in ministry. So thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Micah 6.8, we've heard it being read. Um, Rabbis of old referred to this passage as the passage that sums up, some of them say, the entire law, all the prophets. A rabbi that many of us are familiar with, Jesus, 
he actually takes some of the themes in this passage, justice, mercy, faithfulness, and he says, these are the weightier matters of the law, right? In other words, if you really want to understand what scripture is about, what God's will for creation is, look at this passage, right? So here we are for a few moments today. We're going to be looking at this passage in the next two weeks, looking at this passage, trying to unpack it and learning how it unlocks the secret to living the goodness of God. You know, uh, recently a friend and I were sitting around, hanging out, and I looked at him and his plans for the next couple years of his life, and I said, man, you are living the good life. That's what I said to him. He recently has disembarked to work for ADRA in Africa for a couple of years. Um, He's single. He has uh, no debt. He could go anywhere in the world, do whatever he wants, right? And to me, that sounds like freedom. I wonder what he thinks when he's looking at me and my life. Past couple of years, I've been changing diapers and uh, enduring nights of disturbed sleep, paying off school loans and a mortgage, Southern California mortgage, by the way, sitting through Southern California traffic on many days. And I wonder if he's looking at me and wondering the same thing. And oh, you, you are living the good life. Probably not, right? (laughs) So, you know, what is this thing called the good life? Um, You know, perhaps it's just me. I'm 39. People would say, you know, the cusp of middle age. Maybe these are the kinds of questions that lead to the the famed midlife crisis. Or perhaps it's just, you know, becoming a dad and looking at my daughter and wondering uh, what's in store for her as she gets older. What am I preparing her for, right? I want her to have a good life. So what is that? What is that? I think many of us here gathered today, uh, you know, have a sense that that's what we want. We want the good life. We have slightly different visions of what that might look like. And so we live life working toward milestones, graduation, marriages, the birth of children and grandchildren, a career, retirement. Many of us here this morning have probably sensed that God intends good things for us, the good life for us. We know that, but we're also deeply aware of the moments in our lives where things don't seem to be quite lining up. We turn on the news. You turned on the news this week, by the way, or had it flash across your cell phone. Uh, We live in a complex, broken world, and there's this question of, how do, how do we live this life that we envision for ourselves that we know God wants for us in this kind of world? There seems to be a gap between the good lives we long for, the good lives God intends for us, and the actual world we're living in. Our passage for the next three weeks also addresses people like us, wondering about this, people seeking the good life. Life, however, does not seem to be working out the way they expected. They're under attack, or it seems like they're going to be under attack. A powerful army looms in the north to hear word that the capital in the north, Samaria, has fallen. This army is carving out a path of death and destruction, and now the word on the street is they're headed south, headed to Jerusalem. Why is this happening? Where is God in all this? And where is 
the good God who had brought them into the good land with promises of the good life. Yeah, Canaan, that's right. Brought them into Canaan. Why isn't this God keeping the promises that God has made? And so a man named Micah shows up, and he's going to address these questions. He's going to offer an analysis of why all this is happening. And although if you read it at first glance, it seems like a kind of a cynical message. Deep down inside, if we wrestle with the text, I believe that this Micah is really about the goodness of God and how to live out that goodness in troubled times then and now. So I'm hoping we can take a few moments to look at this text and and see what we can learn about the goodness of God and living it out today. I think the first thing we learn as we look to Micah and look at Micah and listen to his message is that God's goodness is wider than we often think. We don't know much about Micah. From the opening chapter of the book, we've just basically learned that he's from this little town called Moraseth. Moraseth. A small village, about 25 miles to the south and west of Jerusalem. He lived in a time, for you Bible scholars, uh, where the kings Jotham, Hezekiah, and Ahaz ruled. For everybody else, that's a really long time ago, about 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, 8th century BCE. We know that this time, politically and socially, was a time of turmoil and change. It was a time, some might say, of economic growth. It's a time of urbanization, with more and more people leaving their farms and villages and moving into the big city, the capital, Jerusalem. Maybe, I imagine, uh, Micah had moved from his little village and tried to set up a new life in that city, in Jerusalem. I imagine him, a country kid, trying to make it in the city, right, looking around, maybe trying to find an apartment. Those of you who are grad students, you know what this is like, the, the apartment hunt. I imagine Micah looking at the listing and the price. You're going to charge what for what? But it's not just the rent in Jerusalem. Micah looks at the city and looks at what's going on in his society, and he's, he's disturbed, right? And his analysis of his society is strikingly contemporary. I was reading this, uh, this book this week, spending some time, and I was like, wow, this was thousands of years ago? The list is pretty long. His analysis is extensive. But I think that uh, the heart of the problem can be found, actually, in what he says to his people, the people that he loves, okay, in Micah 6, 16. So if you have your Bibles, your phones, you can look that up. It's also on the screen. Here's what Micah says that is such a telling analysis of his society. You have observed the statutes of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Who are Omri and Ahab? Well, they were, it turns out, infamous kings from Jewish history. They would have ruled about 150 to 200 years before Micah. Everybody grew up hearing about how bad these kings were. If you actually look at the stories of the kings, in your Bible, it's called the book of First and Second Kings, right? The stories of the kings. Um, here's the verse that sums up what Ahab's reign was all about. First Kings 21-25. 
You don't want historians writing this about your life, okay? There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner, going after idols. How's that for a legacy? Yeah. What made Ahab such a bad king? Uh, one story in particular stands out. You could say this is the Watergate scandal of ancient Israel, right? People are talking. The king did what? <laughs> right? It's found in the book of 1 Kings chapter 21. Ahab ruled the northern kingdom of Israel for 22 years. And if you read the story, one day after dinner, it seems, Ahab pulls back from the dinner table and he's not quite satisfied with the meal that he's just had. Something is not right. He's thinking about it. It's the vegetables. He needs better vegetables. Bigger, fresher, more variety. Something locally grown, okay? So on his evening walk, as he's ruminating on this unsatisfactory meal, he walks to the edge of his estate, nears the property line, and a solution to the problem becomes clear. His eyes settle on his neighbor's vineyard, right? Growing green vines, juicy grapes. I bet you that plot would grow some good vegetables. That's what, that's what Ahab thinks. I'm going to call Naboth up and I'm going to make him an offer. I will buy this vineyard. I will give him a good price, right? So this is what he does. Maybe he texts uh, his neighbor, Naboth, let me have your vineyard and use it for a vegetable garden. Since it is close to my palace, in exchange, I will give you a better vineyard. And if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. It's a pretty nice offer. If, you, if any of you have had the uh, you know, experience of putting your house on the market, right? You get a buyer. This is the best kind of offer you can get, whatever you want. <laughs> and Naboth, we read, leapt at this opportunity because he had put his vineyard on the market. He asked for a million dollars. He got the money and his family and him lived happily ever after. That's not in the Bible, right? That's not how the story ends. Naboth, I mean, this is, this is the, that children's story was so great. I am not interested in selling you my land, okay? This land has been in my family for generations. I intend to keep it that way. I intend to pass it down to my kids. So thanks for the offer, but I'm not interested. So Ahab disappointed, he returns to his castle and accepts the fact that he must eat substandard vegetables for the near future. That's not in your Bibles either, by the way. <laughs> what does Ahab do? He goes home. He's moping. He's throwing a tantrum. His wife, what's wrong, right? She's upset. What's wrong with you? You're the king, Okay. I'll tell you what kings do, right? Let me take care of this for you, right? So Jezebel gets on her social media accounts. She starts a, writing, a letter writing campaign to all the powerful friends that she has in her network. And this is what she writes. Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat to scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and king. Then take him out and stone him to death. We're going to start a smear campaign, okay? Um, and we're taking him down. That's the plan. 
So you know what the, the cities and nobles, you know, the leaders and nobles of the city do? Naboth's hometown. They do uh, exactly as instructed. When the deed is done, Ahab hears what has happened to Naboth. He gets up and he seizes the property. Then he has his vegetables. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols. Ahab was a bully. In seeking the good life for himself, he ended up not thinking about and not caring about the good life of others. In fact, he was on the trample on others to get what he wanted, to secure for himself and his family what he thought was the good life. Ancient people were disturbed by this story. The Watergate scandal, right? So imagine their surprise when Micah shows up on the scene and he says, hey, you have observed the statutes of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed in their traditions. Micah, as you read the text, is not singling out any person. I mean, sure, there are actors, there's bad actors, but the way Micah seems to see it, it's a systemic social problem. Yeah, there are lots of little Ahabs running around. They covet fields and seize them, just like Ahab did, says Micah. And houses and take them up. They defraud people in their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. But the problem is, is that these bad actors are not acting in a vacuum. Their behavior, their bullying, is actually being supported and legitimated by leaders, political leaders and religious leaders, turning a blind eye, saying it's okay. Listen to, listen to how Micah puts it. Micah 3.11, her leaders, this is the nation of Judah, judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Micah 7.3, the ruler demands gifts, the judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire, and they all conspire together. The bullies are running wild, okay? Who's there to stop them? Who's there to stop Ahab? Turns out nobody. <laughs> Nobody's there, right? So God gets involved. Look, Micah tells his audience, God cares about you. God loves you. God wants the good life for you. But God cares about others too. God's goodness is wider than you're thinking. It includes you, but it also goes beyond you, all right? God cares about all of us together, his children, and wants us to see that big picture and care about it too. The good life, according to God, is a life that is concerned not just about me and the good life for me, but the good life for you, right? And the good life for us together. Just completing my fourth year of teaching at Loma Linda, 
um, although I'm not a, a real doctor, I tell it to my students. I think I'm picking up some of the lingo the doctors use. I, I imagine Micah, he's putting on his doctor's hat, looking at his audience and, and saying, this is really, really serious. It's a lot more serious than you think. Um, you have cancer. It's, it's spreading everywhere. We've got to take care of this. Wow. We had no idea it was really this bad, Micah. We had no idea, right? Is there hope? Uh, is it too late? Is there a treatment for this? Good news, Micah says. With God, there's always hope. There's always hope because Micah says, and this is the second message Micah has for his people, God's goodness, God's grace is deeper than we think. Good news, there's treatment for the cancer. All right, so how much does it cost? Does, does God take insurance? <laughs> Can we offer him better worship, perhaps? Bigger offerings? More tithe? Give up something that's really, really important to us. Is that what God wants? Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts uh, this kind of reasoning in the message. Should I bring an armload of offerings topped off with yearling calves? Would God be impressed with thousands of rams, with buckets and barrels of olive oil? Would he be moved if I sacrificed my firstborn child, my precious baby, to cancel out my sin? I mean, have you ever gotten a hospital bill in the mail that you weren't expecting? Or maybe for the repair to your air conditioner during the summer or for that, that part in your car that just went kerplunk? You get the bill, you look at it, what do you think? Man, how am I going to pay this off, right? Now is not a good time. <laughs> now is not a good time. I think often we think God is like the billing department of the hospital or the auto mechanic shop or the handyman's office. God, I'm, I'm really sorry. I've made a mess of things. If you bail me out just this once, right? I'll get back to church, I promise. I'll be at camp meeting every week, yeah? I'll put an extra offering in the, in the offering basket when it goes by. We try our best to make amends, to earn God's forgiveness, to pay for the healing that God is offering. I will give you something better. I will give you something expensive. I will pour it on, all right? My most valued possession. Micah reminds the people of his day, no, that's okay. God doesn't want payment from you. God's goodness is deeper than you think. It's grace. God doesn't want bigger and better offerings. Go ahead. You could, you could put the debit cards away. I love the way Micah closes out his little book. He's had some pointed things to say to his people, things that make them squirm, feel uncomfortable. But in the end, he ends with grace. Micah 7, 18 through 19. I wonder if we could kind of read this together, maybe as a liturgical reading, right? Here's the, the texts on the screen. 
Okay, Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Amen. That's the Old Testament, by the way. Micah, right? You can't pay for this kind of treatment, God says. I've got the expenses all covered. One day some of you will understand. (laughs) But for now, I would like for you to cooperate with the treatment plan. And guess what? turns out that living out God's goodness, living out the goodness of God, is a lot simpler than most of us think. God's goodness is what? Is broader than we often think. God's goodness and grace is deeper than we often think. And God's plan for living out that goodness is a lot simpler than a lot of us think. Micah says there's only three things that are part of this plan. What are they? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Now my colleagues and friends, Jeff and Zach, Dr. Plantack and Yang, (laughs) um, they're going to be talking about what it looks like to do justly, love mercy, next week and the week after that. So just a few thoughts on Walking humbly. Walking humbly with who? With God, okay? This is a personal kind of walk. It's a kind of walk that we were all created for. I love the way that Genesis describes God and his relation to the first humans. Genesis 3, 8, in the evening of the day, who is walking in the garden? God is walking in the garden. Who do you think he's there wanting to walk with? Adam and Eve. We were created to walk with God. It's a personal walk. It's a walk that's intended to not just be on and off once in a while, right? It's it's, it's supposed to be a walk that is a consistent walk that, that extends over our entire lives. That ancient book again, Genesis, Genesis 5, 21 to 24, uh, this language of walking, right, echoes the experience of another uh, Jewish sage. We actually don't know much about him either. His name is Enoch. You know the story? Remember it? Who was Enoch and what did he do? Enoch, and some of you parents can relate with this, Enoch had a kid, right? kid's name was Methuselah. Okay. And when, the kid, when, when his son was born, what did Enoch begin to do? Yeah, he began to walk with God. Right? Something about that experience of becoming a parent right? uh, opened up his spiritual life, right? And he began walking with God, right? And how long did he walk with God? Yeah, a while. <laughs> he kept walking with God. He kept walking with God. He got older and older and older. And at the end of his life, what happened? 
we don't know what happened. He just kept walking with God, <laughs> okay? He, wa- he kept walking with God, and that's how the story, I guess, ends. <laughs> I guess it's not ending, but that's all we really know. Enoch is this man who walked with God. Uh, third point about walking with God that I'd make, uh, I think that walking with God uh, always takes us to interesting places if we do it consistently. You know, we live in a world that in many ways mirrors Micah's world. It's a world of systemic injustice. We live in a world full of Naboths and Ahabs. And we're kind of, a lot of us, stuck in the middle. Sometimes we're Naboth, sometimes we're Ahab, sometimes we're confused. We don't know what's going on, right? We hear in the news about all the things that are happening all over social injustice, the treatment of this group against, uh, over this group, the 1%, 99%, right? Um, Black Lives Matter, uh, wars. Wow, what, what do we do in this kind of world? It's overwhelming. But I think one thing that God might do with us as we walk with God is that he might say to us, hey, I want you to be like Micah. In your circle of influence, right, where people listen to you and look to you, when you see people bullying other people, throwing around money and power, right, don't let that bully keep doing what that bully is doing, right? That's called prophecy. When God's, God tells somebody who's walking with him, hey, stand up. Don't let this keep happening, right? The Israelites had Micah in Micah's day. Ahab did what he did, and God sent a man named Elijah, right? Could it be that today in the 21st century in the world that we live in, God is looking to send Elijah's and Micah's to their parts of the world, their workplaces, their schools, to stand up the bullies, right? And say, nah, not here, not today. Okay. So you're asking, okay, so how do I walk with God? I want to walk with God. Make it practical for me. Um, Can we look really quickly at two more texts? Um, I think Micah kind of shed some insight into this or alludes to it, hints at it. Micah 5, 2 through 4. uh, God makes a promise to the people in Micah's day. He promises the coming of a new, new shepherd. He says, this shepherd will stand He will stand up to the injustice. And he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And this shepherd, Micah foresees, will gather together. This is a great word. You've grown up in the Adventist tradition. He will gather together a what? A remnant. That's what Micah says. He will gather together a remnant the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many people. Like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend, depend on man. I love this image. I think it's because I've lived in Southern California, right? And it's summertime. Dew and showers on the grass all over, right? Bringing life and refreshment wherever it falls, Right? Light to the world, life to the world. Who is the shepherd? And who are these people? Jesus says many years later, I am the, the good shepherd. Right? I lay down my life for my sheep. 
He also says, my sheep, they hear my voice, right? And they know it's me. They follow me wherever they are. If you want to start walking with God and you want to deepen your walk with God, maybe you're like, I don't, I don't know what it's like to walk with God. Here's a, here's a starting place. Start walking with Jesus, right? Let Jesus be your friend. Let Jesus be your teacher. Let Jesus be your coach, right? He will show you how to walk with God. And you can start doing that today, right? You can start doing that today. So can I close by giving you an update about my daughter? Last time I was here, I actually had a picture. This time I don't have a picture. Um, but I want to give you an update. My daughter is uh, three, three and a half now, going on 21. Um, and uh, it's summertime. And the past few months, um, there's a ritual that's started developing in our household. It's uh, after dinner and, uh, you know, I'm getting relaxed, ready to get the Netflix on, right? Um, but my daughter has different plans. She wants to go to the playground. There's a lot of, a lot of light, light left in the day. And we have a little park about half a mile away from the house. And so she says, Daddy and I go to the playground, right? So I, I look at Mom. Sometimes Mom comes with us, but a lot of times it's Daddy and Ava, right? Um, we walk out to the garage, and she gets to choose. Is she going to walk? Is she going to ride her bicycle, her tricycle, or just be carted around in the wagon, right? And so we'll walk down to the park right around 6 or 7, right? It's a beautiful time of day. It's kind of California golden hour, right? And we get to the park, and there's a lot of different kinds of things we do once we get there. Sometimes we'll sit there, and I call it dinner number two. Uh, my daughter will take snacks, even though she's just eaten, and she'll want to sit there at the bench, and we'll look at the sunset and just eat gummy worms and uh, you know, crackers, whatever, right? And uh, she'll ask me about my day. Um, well, maybe one day she'll do that. Uh, sometimes we will, we, will, we will play soccer, okay? Um, she's learned to kick the ball. She's really good. I see a bright future for her there. And other times she'll go to the playground. Other times she just plays with the other kids that are there, and I'm there in the corner with the other dads watching her. Uh, have a good time. So here's the thought that kind of came to me just this week. Uh, maybe it was because I was reflecting on this passage. I don't really know what the future holds for my daughter. I don't know what kind of situation she's going to encounter. Uh, I don't know what books I need to read. Uh, I don't know how to be an expert parent. I think I'm learning, and then it all changes because she grows. But here's the thought that I had uh, as I was watching her this week. You know, um, we need to keep taking these walks. All right? Something tells me that if we just keep taking these walks, everything is going to turn out okay. Right? I just need to keep walking with my daughter. My daughter needs to keep walking with me. So here's the good news. God wants to walk with each and every one of us, no matter where we are, where we've been, through this life. Right? God wants to be our companion, our guide, our teacher. Right? That's what God wants. So the question is, as we close, 
do we want to walk with God, right? I hope it's your desire to walk with God, right? And uh, as, as we have our closing song, uh, maybe we could pray to God, asking him to walk with us and to hold us when we don't feel like we can keep walking. <laughs>